You are listening to Ouija Broads. This is Liz. What? <laughs> <laughs> I tricked you. This is Devin. <laughs> I couldn't tell if that was a mistake or not. Have you ever had that happen? Yes. <laughs> Where you pick up the phone and you say, yes. like, the name of the person you're looking at? <laughs> Instead of, yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I tricked you. You did that on purpose. Yeah, I did that on purpose. <laughs> okay. You want me to do it again? This is Liz. <laughs> this is Devin. You're listening to Ouija Brats. Mm. You're listening to Ouija Butts. You're listening to whatever I say. I'm in charge. <laughs> You're listening to Ouija Brads. And Liz, today I want to tell you about one of the great unsolved crimes of our area. Are you ready for it? I am ready for it. Well, this crime is maybe not unsolved because you were here in Seattle this weekend and we found the dude. I, I got we my did. I got my picture taken with DB Cooper on the pier. He was metallic. He was a statue and he had DB Cooper written on his helmet, so you knew it was him. You know how I know it was DB Cooper was because he was wearing the telltale suit and then like you said he had DB Cooper written on his helmet. Um, yeah, case closed. Case closed. Found him. So I guess this was a pretty short episode. Uh, thanks for listening. You, you should rate, review, and subscribe. All that good stuff. Well, for real, the real D.B. Cooper, not the dude we saw on the pier, is a man who in 1971 hijacked a plane. He held it for ransom and then jumped out of the plane while it was in flight somewhere over Washington or Oregon and was never heard from again, Liz. Ooh. Yeah. Until we found him. Until we found him. Like you said, case closed. The mm-hmm. FBI still has the case open for substantial leads, so I think we should probably phone it in. <laughs> I'll let you do that one. The story starts Thanksgiving evening, which is November 25th, 1971, when a man who identified himself as Dan Cooper purchased an airline ticket at the Portland airport for a 30-minute one-way trip bound for Seattle on a Boeing 747. Okay. So Dan Cooper, not D.B. Cooper. Mm -hmm. This Mm -hmm. man sat in the rear of the plane. He ordered a bourbon and soda, smoked a cigarette, and then when... Ew. (laughs) Do you remember? I don't remember. Could you smoke when we were kids in planes? I don't think I was on a plane when I was a kid till I was about 13 or so. And I think by that point you couldn't. But I do remember you could still smoke in restaurants and businesses and stuff. It was nasty. Yeah. Well, I don't remember either. I know I was flying ever since I was a kiddo. You know, like uh, ever since I was a couple weeks old to go visit family. Um, Mm -hmm. I remember the ashtrays in the arms of the airplanes. Do you remember those? And people would... Yeah, they were these weird little metal receptacles and you'd push on one side. Ew, they were gross. They were always full of gum. Oh, God, I bet they were. Yeah, yeah. Well... Yeah, I mean, smokers live your life in bodily autonomy and all that, but in a plane... I don't like flying to begin with. I really don't want to be trapped around more smells than I have to be. Yeah. Well, anyway, you could smoke back in the 70s. So DB had... I'm sorry, Dan had his, you know, cigarette... He had his bourbon, and when they're in the air, he passes a stewardess a note. Now, the stewardess is like, great, awesome, another lonely businessman trying (laughs) to get some flight attendant tail, so she drops the note in her pocket. He sees this and later flags her down and says, Miss, I think you're going to want to read that note. 
I have a bomb. Nah. Yeah. Great lead in. Uh, so she asked to see the bomb and said to police later that when he opened his attache case, there were eight red cylinders attached to a battery with wires. So it looked enough like a bomb to her. She was convinced. That's an interesting reaction. I wonder if that was what they were taught to do. Or she just thought he was BSing to give her his number. I wonder that too, right? When I read that, I'm going, that's not what I would have wanted. No. I would have said, oh, get me off the plane then. Great. I believe yeah. you. Or I'd say, you know, what do you want? Or what's happening? Or yeah. crap. Yeah. Not just, no, you don't. Yeah. No, you Show don't. Me. Wait, you big fat liar. <laughs> get out of here with that, Coop. Uh, well, she did eventually ask him what his demands were. And he said that he wanted... Uh, $200,000, which is like $1.2 million today, and he wanted mm. four parachutes, and he wanted a fuel truck standing by in Seattle to refuel the plane, because once they landed, he was going to take off with them and the money. The stewardess has to go tell the pilots, who mm. then radio air control, and air control has to contact local and federal authorities. The... Airline company president says, okay, great, let's pay the ransom. All of you employees, go ahead and comply with his demands. We don't want anybody to get hurt. We'll work p with police and figure out what we're going to do. And they decided to tell the passengers that their landing was going to be delayed because of a minor technical difficulty. Which, okay. Yeah, apparently code for, holy shit, there's a bomb on your plane. So yeah. the plane circles the airport for two hours on a half an hour uh, flight. Why? Why were they circling? Because they, they were getting everything lined up? Exactly. They were waiting for the FBI oh. to assemble the ransom demands. So these poor passengers are like, technical difficulty, don't you think we should be on the ground? And they're like, no, <laughs> no, it's better up here. <laughs> don't worry about it. Keep Have flying. us another cigarette. <laughs> yep. Have some more bourbon and cigarettes. Police assembled the money from several different Seattle banks. So they got this $200,000 together as 10000 $20 bills. Super spendable, right? Mm -hmm. That's how mm -hmm. I'd want it. But they made uh, photocopies of all of the bills. and they, That's some fast photocopying. Fast photocopying, especially for back then, right? Mm -hmm. uh, they knew the serial number of all the bills, too. They were... Bundles of them were sequential. So they knew what money was going off to this dude. It wasn't just totally random. Mm -hmm. They grabbed four parachutes from the nearby uh, Fort McCord... Air Force Base, but when Cooper found that out, he goes, no, 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 I want civilian parachutes. So they had to go get the manually operated ripcord parachutes from a local uh, skydiving school. Did he say why? He did not say why. Huh. But they said, okay, we'll get you these. And that, you know, figures into who they think he is later. Okay, Why he cool. would have picked those. So it's two and a half hours later. The plane finally lands because all of the items are assembled. They land on the tarmac, and Cooper has the pilot taxi to a brightly lit area. He extinguishes all the airplane lights so that snipers can't see in them and has uh, one of the flight attendants, Tina Mucklow, go down the stairs to get the bags of money and the mm -hmm. parachutes from the operations manager who brings them. So he gets the delivery on board and goes, awesome, this is great. All passengers, you go free. Flight attendant who was helping me earlier, you go free. Senior flight attendant, you can leave as well. So now I've got the pilot, the co-pilot, 
one of the flight attendants, and an airline engineer on board. Great. We're going to go. And that's it. Okay. And that's it. So it's me plus four flight crew. We're going to go back in the air. And what I want you to do is fly southeast toward Mexico City. He was really specific in telling the pilot what he wanted to do and how he wanted to do it. He said, you're going to go southeast toward Mexico. And you're going to go at the minimum airspeed you can fly without stalling the aircraft. And I know that that's about 120 miles an hour. I want you to make sure the plane stays uh, at a maximum of 10,000 feet. And I need you to have the landing gear deployed and the wing flaps lowered to 15 degrees and the cabin to remain unpressurized. He that had, is very specific. It was yeah. really specific. This was one of the hallmarks of D.B. Cooper in the investigation was that this man was very well prepared. He'd obviously thought this through and he obviously knew a lot about planes and specifically mm. this Boeing 747 because it was one of the few planes that you uh, could fly that low and that slow without stalling the aircraft. Oh, it was okay. one of the few planes that you could deploy the back stairs. That was another thing he said was he wanted the rear stairs to be deployed and the airline company said, no, it's too risky. You can't fly with the landing gear down and you can't fly with the stairs down. And Cooper goes, no, actually, I know that you can do that with this plane, but it doesn't matter. I know how to deploy them mid-flight, so it's fine. We'll take off without so that. rear stairs is in like how they have exits to the front and rear, and that was exactly. for like, passenger loading and unloading? Yeah, okay. exactly. Um, I can't tell. In the 70s, was that before we would have had, would you have just boarded on the tarmac? You know, like where you go up up the stair ramp. I think that was before they had like those weird extending terminals. I think in general, yeah. yeah. I mean, they still do that a lot. Yeah, they do, especially on the smaller ones, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but they don't like to put you on through the back stairs because then you have to go around or under the wing. Yeah, exactly. So mm -hmm. he knew about the back stairs. He was all about them doing that. And then he knew how to actually operate the back stairs which was another piece of the mystery of who is D.B. Cooper. Yeah. The co-pilot says, well, we can't make it all the way to Mexico City. We're going to have to refuel. So they decide, okay, fine. We'll land in Reno, Nevada and refuel. And then Cooper gives them the okay to start flying. They do this. The plane takes off at about 7 p.m. now, and it's in the air for about an hour when Cooper says, all right, everybody in the cockpit, close the door. I don't need you. I don't need your help. Just keep flying to Reno. Unbeknownst to him, they're being followed by two uh, F, what are they, F-106 fighter jets from nearby McCord. And then there's another Lockheed T-33 that's shadowing them. With the idea of just observing it or shooting it down if it looked like something was going to happen? Exactly. With the idea mostly okay. of observing it. I didn't read this on the in the case file, but it sounds like they knew he was probably going to jump out of the airplane because he asked for four parachutes. Um, yeah. Later they talk about how that was actually a really smart move because by asking for four parachutes, the FBI assumes he's going to make someone in the plane jump out with him. And if they think oh. that, they're not going to sabotage any of the parachutes. He had four flight crew and four parachutes. So you, I don't know enough about planes to know if this is feasible, but you could also imagine him kicking them out 
and then going by himself with the plane someplace else. Exactly right. I thought that too. Mm -hmm. uh, he asked specifically for two main shoots and two backup shoots. So he wants two that are you wear like a backpack and two that you wear on the front of you. And like I said earlier, they're they're from a skydiving school. Mm -hmm. This is important later. <clears throat> okay. Anyway, it's about 8 o'clock. They've been in the air for an hour. He says, everybody, y'all go up, you get in the cockpit, and you shut the door. This was back before cockpits had keyholes, so they can't see what's going on in the cabin. Mm. They're in the cockpit, and a warning light flashes, indicating that the stairs have indeed been activated, and the crew can notice a change in pressure, so they assume mm -hmm. that that rear door has been opened. At exactly 8.13 p.m., the tail section of the plane sustains a sudden upward movement, which the pilot has to correct for. There's enough of, of this disturbance that he's got to bring them back to level. And then when they land in Reno at about 10 p.m., police search the airplane, and it's empty. No Cooper, no money. Two of the parachutes are gone. Only two, huh? Only two of the parachutes are gone. One main one reserve parachute are gone. And did the people following him see anything? Or the, they weren't close enough? The uh, two F-106s uh, F saw nothing. The T-33 never actually got within visual, uh, never got a visual lock on the plane. It only could go so far before it was low on fuel. It was in the area anyway doing a some kind of National Guard or something training. So it was like, cool, we'll hang out in case we can be of help. But it had to turn around. Oh, okay. The uh, F-106 fighter pilots didn't see anything. But here's why. They're in pitch black. They're yeah. in a thunderstorm. They're in a rainstorm. Oh, D.B. Okay. Cooper is wearing all black. And they are traveling at... Uh, just about 200 miles an hour. So it uh, would have been really easy to miss a little dude jumping out of the plane. Mm -hmm. You could have not seen the parachute if you were still focused on the plane, you know, by the time yeah. he deploys it. Yeah, and it's the kind of thing where everything's going so fast that if you, you know, glance at your instruments for a second or a split second, you could completely miss uh, it. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, so I'm looking at a 747 on the internet right now because I wanted to see it. That's yeah. So they used to just call them jumbo jets. So these this is a big plane. It's a big plane. I've never gone from Seattle. Well, I've gone to Seattle, Seattle to Spokane, but they've all been on those little puddle jumpers. I've never done mm. the Seattle to Portland, but for sure, I wouldn't assume it would be on a jumbo jet. You'd think it was just on a little guy. Yeah, I've never flown Spokane to Portland or back on a big plane like this. It's always yeah. a little bitty one. Oh, man, it was the 70s. Different time. You got your uh, big jet. rather squeeze my butt into a chair and not have to breathe smoke. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, I guess that rules you out for being Cooper. <laughs> Good job, Liz. Good job, Liz. Uh, they, you know, so they're searching the plane, right? They find that he's left two parachutes, one of which has been opened and the shroud lines have been cut from its canopy. So he cannibalized it to tie something up. They assume he either tied the money to himself or they tied the money bag shut with part of this. Oh, uh, okay. So he just, shroud lines just meaning he got some string He got from some it. string off of it. Yep. Okay. I told you earlier that he checked in with the name Dan Cooper. D.B. Yeah. Cooper is 
the fault of a journalist who was rushing too fast to print this story. Um, you know, so the media knows that this <laughs> plane has been hijacked. One of the very first suspects they police interviewed was a man in Portland whose name was D.B. Cooper. And uh, he had a criminal history and they thought, well, just in case this dude was stupid enough to use his real name, Dan Cooper, let's go interview him. But this reporter who's rushing to, you know, meet a deadline prints it with the pseudonym D.B. Cooper and then it gets picked up by the Associated Press and is now imprinted in the collective consciousness as D.B. Cooper. Yeah, it's more distinctive, too. It's way more distinctive. Dan Cooper, you're just like, eh, D.B. Cooper, that's a name. That's Mm -hmm. a title and it adds some mystery because it's just initials. How stringent, you might not know this and that's okay, but if somebody said they were Dan Cooper in the 70s when buying an airline ticket or checking in, do they actually need to show any ID or could you just do whatever? I think you could just do whatever. The this case marked i mean we have db cooper to thank basically for tsa so there was no pre-screening there was no real checking of anything they didn't search your luggage they didn't ask for anything he bought a 20 dollar plane ticket at the counter and hopped $20. on the plane that same hour yeah wow 20 bucks to get from portland to seattle uh after After D.B. Cooper, in 1972, there were, I think it was 38 other air hijackings in that year alone, 19 of which were predicated on wanting some kind of ransom. Oh. So FAA goes, fuck, we better fix this. And it's in 1973 that they start instituting uh, baggage and person searching. Oh, and okay. It's all because D.B. Cooper and then this string of copycats were able to walk on airplanes with guns, with fake grenades, with bombs, and say, yeah. what up? I want this. Of the, uh, what was it? I think it was 38 people, 19 wanted ransom. The others, for the most part, wanted to go to Cuba. So he was a trendsetter, huh? Cooper was on it, man. He was, you know, the... Ugg boots of the 70s. <laughs> Everybody wanted a piece of that. The FBI definitely wanted a piece of that. The FBI were super upset that a man had managed to get $200,000, jump out of an airplane, and get away with it thus far. So they immediately start searching for clues and interviewing suspects. Of what they recovered on the airplane, they found Cooper's black clip-on tie and his mother of pearl tie clip as well as two parachutes one of which i had said before was opened and its lines were cut from the canopy that is not a lot to go on they have evidence of you know a fake name they have evidence of what he looked like from the flight crew and then they've got this tie i wonder why he left his tie I assumed it was just because it was going to flap in the wind. I don't know. What was really interesting about him was the stewardesses all reported how professional, polite, calm, kind he was. Hmm. He was dressed in a black business suit with loafers and a trench coat. He had this tie with its, you know, nice mother of pearl tie clip 
when he bought his second bourbon, he tried to get mm-hmm. the stewardess to keep the change. So he tried to give her a tip. And when he was talking about ransom demands, he said, hey, y'all, we're going to be in the air for a while. Do you want me to include dinner for you? I, I can, <laughs> That's so thoughtful. I can get you dinner. Isn't that adorable? Like, yeah. In, it was this, among other things, that actually, you know, usually the public is like, ah, oh, criminals, burn them. We hate criminals. He actually became this kind of folklore cult hero to a lot yeah. of people. Uh, because he was so nice, because he was so professional, because he was put together. And then also at the time, you know, he was majorly tweaking the nose of the FBI as as the case mm-hmm. goes on and on. It's under the twilight years of J. Edgar Hoover. And it's the beginning of uh, or part of the Nixon administration. All these people are kind of like, right on, DB. You get it. Yeah. You and get this, this money. Kind of, you know, I that gentleman thief... Yes. trope is a trope for a great reason which is i think we all want to imagine that there's people out there who can just be cool and sidestep the law but not actually while hurting anybody while being absolutely you know o- only hurting big businesses and stuff like that it was a victimless crime i mean other than mm-hmm. i get it the insurance company takes a hit the airline takes a hit the flight attendants and flight crew probably pretty darn scared for a little bit i get that so he's not without upsetting people or inconveniencing people but no he didn't hurt anybody he was yeah it was it would be scary but he really minimized the harm as much as he could he really did the situation he really did i thought so as well there are two scenarios fbi is looking for they're looking for a man who jumped out of a plane survived the fall and is now in the wilderness somewhere with a whole lot of cash, and mm-hmm. they want to capture him, or they're looking for a body, hopefully also with the cash, and they would yeah. like to find that as well. To find him on the ground, what they need to know is where was he likely to have fallen? And that's so difficult to calculate, Liz, because they, they need aircraft speed, they need aircraft altitude, they need mm-hmm. environmental conditions, they need to know how long he was in free fall before he pulled the parachute, which was oh, not okay. something I considered until, you know, they spell it out in the yeah. the case files. Um, and they, they don't know any of these things. They know about how fast they were going. They know mm-hmm. about how high they were. They are pretty sure that 8.13 p.m. is when he jumped out of the back of the plane, but the pilots that were following in the fighter jets don't have any visual confirmation of this, so they have no way of being positive. What they do is figure, okay, he probably landed in this, uh, the southernmost area of Mount St. Helens near a city called Ariel, Washington, And that's near a thing called Lake Merwin. So this is where we're going to concentrate our ground efforts. We're going to search Clark and Cowlitz counties. We're going to use planes and helicopters to survey the area. We're going to look for, you know, big white parachutes. That'll Mm -hmm. sure help. We'll look for broken treetops. We'll start dredging the lake in case he happened to fall in Lake Merwin. And we'll use submarines and sonar to help with that as well. And then we're going to have... Go oh, go ahead. Go ahead I was going to say, they also used over 200 um, P-51 
people on the ground. These were soldiers. They mm-hmm. were Air Force troops, National Guardsmen, and civilians who were going house to house at these remote farmhouses in the area saying, what up? Are you okay? Is there a dude who came limping up to your farmhouse needing yeah. medical assistance? Because we're pretty sure if the dude lived to land on the ground, it was probably a pretty traumatic impact. We bet he's a little bit hurt. Why do they think that? They thought that because they think he wasn't a very skilled skydiver. Initially, when he asked for four parachutes and he said, I want them to be civilian, not military, they thought, okay, this guy must be an, he must be a hobbyist skydiver. We mm-hmm. bet he knows what he's doing and he, he could have survived the jump. Pretty quickly after, they change their tune and they think, well, if he was so good at skydiving, of the two main parachutes, he picked the older parachute, not the newer, more technically advanced one. And of the reserve parachutes, Liz, he picked the one they, FBI says this was not done on purpose, but it was a, a dummy parachute that was only used for training purposes and would not have worked. If you pulled the cord, nothing would have happened. So you he- should never make a thing <laughs> that looks like a real parachute and can be confused with a real parachute but doesn't work. <laughs> it's not thought. like he put a fucking Jansport on. Is the FBI people idea? thought that was a real parachute. The skydiving school apparently <laughs> thought it was a real parachute. And apparently D.B. Cooper did, too. That is just asking for trouble. That's like, oh, well, here's my strychnine collection. I keep it in a can of Coke. And I keep it next to all the other Coke. <laughs> but don't worry. It's the one that has an X on it. Somewhere. Yeah. Don't drink Somewhere. that one. On the bottom. <laughs> <laughs> they say... They say it had dummy written all over it. Fake written all over it. And yet, as you point out, it somehow went over the head of the guy who owned the skydiving school who grabbed these shoots himself over the FBI and then over poor Mr. Cooper, who now has, you know, an extra 10 pounds of of silk strapped to him just for looks. Yeah, so I know very little about <laughs> skydiving. It was but- for showing, not for blowing. Just for showing. But so he had a main chute and then a reserve chute. Exactly. And his main one was the only one that actually worked. That's his main happened. was the only one that actually worked. And it was and, the older of the two main ones. And it was the older ones. of the two main chutes. So if he'd been an experienced skydiver, he would have known that this was an older, less desirable chute and should have picked the newer one. Well, what was- that maybe suggest to me is that his experience was a little older and he picked the thing he was more familiar with i had not thought of that you brilliant little thing you (laughs) oh i hadn't thought of that i was just like oh nuts this poor dude he knew he knew enough to get himself in trouble but not enough to uh not enough to you know get himself out of trouble knew enough to make himself dangerous i guess yeah I mean, at a guess, it sounds like he knew more about planes than he did about skydiving, but he still... That's why I can't believe there were 19 people that thought this was a great idea to rip off, because I would be like, yes, this plan depends on me being in control of an airplane. I don't even like... I don't feel in control of myself on an airplane half the time. Oh, yeah. 
I you picked up on what the FBI thinks in terms of suspects was that he was probably familiar with planes in some capacity, and he probably had a passing understanding of parachutes and of skydiving, but was not hmm. experienced. So I'll tell you more about the theories when we get to that section of my notes, but they think, well, maybe this guy worked on airplanes. Maybe he was ex-military, ex-Air Force, but he was a cargo loader. So he would have had familiarity with how to operate a plane, and they would have had rudimentary skydiving training because apparently the cargo loaders had skydiving training in case, you know, the plane's going to blow up or whatever and you have to get out. Uh, But it wouldn't have been something that he was overly familiar with or had done without a lot of instruction and supervision. Yeah, he got kind of the basics, and he might have been rusty. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So you got 200 folks out there looking for Coop on the ground. And there's nothing, Liz. They find nothing. They don't have someone who's him, who's seen the money, who saw an errant parachuter. Nothing. What they do find... Uh, two of the folks who were helping stumble across a skull in an abandoned building. And they're like, the fuck is this? We bet we found Cooper. And the forensics said, no, actually, this is unfortunately from a teen who was kidnapped and murdered uh, a year ago from the area. Uh, That's terrifying. So we'll close the case on that one. Thanks for your Maybe help. Maybe we should just, in general, do some cleanup searches every six months or so. If you can find stuff like that just in the middle of nowhere, I like your thought. Let's get a grid. Yeah. I'll go can you- check out an acre of land. What time of year was this again? This was November. It was Thanksgiving weekend. Oh, right. So it's late November. Mm-hmm. There was a thunderstorm. Mm-hmm. So this is not like a... You know, like you do it in a movie where you'd parachute down into a clean field yes. with no cow poop. Yes. And then stand up and dust yourself off and, and walk away. Yes. Like, you'd be soaked. I can't imagine, you know, he, his pockets were just stuffed full of those little pretzels. <laughs> and in the rain. He's, he, he's got that really think, thin, crappy airline blanket that they give you, which just doesn't yeah. shed water even a little bit. Um, yeah, because from what I hear, he wait. So when he left, did he take the bomb with him, or did he leave he it? He took the attaché case with him. Yes. So presumably okay. he took the bomb with him, or he it was a fake bomb and he dumped the guts and then stuffed the case full of money. Who knows? But it was yeah. Off but of the he plane. didn't like pack a lunch. He didn't pack a lunch. Just those little or a windbreaker. Those. <laughs> A poor man needed a windbreaker. He was jumping out into 200 mile an hour winds, and with the wind chill, it was minus 76 degrees Fahrenheit. Jesus! He had a trench coat, Liz. Trench coat. That was another reason the FBI, so initially, right away, they're like, this guy knows what he's doing. Hours later, they're like, homeboy, dumb. Because if you survive the jump, you know, you don't, you don't get sucked into the superheated exhaust fumes and roast your little face That could off. happen? Yeah. This plane had three aft-facing, uh, what are those? The jet engines were aft-facing, mm-hmm. so they were all backward-facing. It was the safest commercial plane to jump from if you were going to jump from one because you can probably, likely jump out and get under that exhaust stream 
before the superheated fumes kill you. Probably. Mm. So he picked a good one. If you're going to jump out of a commercial plane in the 70s, that was the one to do it from. You got the stairs, you got the door, you can maybe probably get under the hot stuff, but now you're in a rainstorm, 200 mile an hour winds, you can't see shit, you're full of pretzels, you're a little bit drunk, and (laughs) you're parachuting over, dude, I would have had to have more than two bourbons for this jump, but you're parachuting Mm -hmm. over, what have we talked about is between... You know, Seattle and San Francisco is a Bigfoot. shit ton of Bigfoots. A whole lot. <laughs> you called it. Batsquatch. Bat-squatch. <gasps> Devin Batsquatch got him. Oh, no. Batsquatch just snatched him out of the just... air like a seagull with a french fry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what did Batsquatch spend his money on? What do you think? Or does he just line his nest with it? Maybe Batsquatch has no need for American money. <laughs> That's a good point. I guess. Oh, <laughs> poor man. Okay. Well, if Batsquatch didn't get him, I guess the FBI didn't consider that because they decided to recalculate where the likely drop zone was and the new drop zone with new, you know, whatever, fancy math calculations was probably mm-hmm. south-southeast of the original estimate in the area of the Washougal River. So they're like, all right, I guess we should probably start searching there as well. They don't find Hmm. anything. They don't find any evidence, Liz, until 1978, when a hunter finds on this logging road a placard that has the instructions for lowering the stairs of a 747. And the FBI can't prove it, but they assume that it came out of the 747 that had its stairs lowered with shit blowing out of it a bunch of years earlier. Yeah, I would really hope that these things aren't just coming out of planes. I would like my planes to be a lot more secured than this. Mm -hmm. Don't leave it on the roof like so much Starbucks. (sighs) Blow away. (laughs) Have you ever done that? I don't think so. I don't, but I, I wouldn't remember. You wouldn't remember. It just feels like something I would do. It's gone. Yep. The next evidence they find, Liz, is in 1980. And it's when this okay. little eight-year-old, Brian, he was playing along uh, the Columbia River. His family was on a camping trip, and he's over on the riverbed, and he's digging up some stuff so they can have a fire. And he finds three packets of the ransom cash. Oh! Which is just under $6,000. And it's 20 miles from Ariel, Washington, which is one of the original places they thought he was. The money Mm -hmm. was janky, dude. It was super badly disintegrated. But obviously, the FBI's got all the serial numbers. They can confirm that this is indeed from the ransom money that was given to Cooper. And it was packed up the way that the FBI had packed it originally? Packed up the way the FBI had originally packed it, mostly. There were two packets of 100 $20 bills and one packet of 90 $20 bills. So 10 bills were missing from one packet. Hmm. And that's part of the mystery of this. They have no idea. Did Cooper take out, you know, a little bit of folding money? Were they spendably janky? No, no. I saw pictures of these. That rules out Brian. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Little Brian just picking it out. I got some morals of a pirate, but I know I'd kind of be like, 
am I going to tell you about this money? Yes. Oh, no. I'm going to keep a little bit. And no, it's too rotty, huh? Too rotty. Brian did good for himself, though, uh, later on. He was able to... Well, the FBI, once they determine that this money is indeed D.B. Cooper's, it takes them forever to figure out, well, who gets the money then? And they split it between little Brian Ingram and the uh, the insurance agency that, that paid for the $200,000 that the airline company is now out. And okay. little Brian Ingram in 2008 was able to sell 19 of these $20 bills for or $37,000. Wow, okay, way to go, Brian. Yeah, he did okay. Enterprising little guy. Enterprising little guy. So did the FBI rush out to look around Mm -hmm. where they found the money? Absolutely they did. They were all kinds of over this. They were trying to figure out how does the money get here? Did it wash downstream? Was it placed here? If it was placed here, was it a person? Was it D.B. Cooper? Was it someone... Mm -hmm in the hills who found it and was like, awesome, I'm going to stash this money for later. Was it an animal that was just like crazy packets of stuff? I don't know what I'm doing. I'm a deer. And it digs a hole and Mm -hmm. dumps it in. They had all kinds of scientists check this out. The wear patterns on the bills. How do you do this? How do you check wear patterns on bills? But the corners are all rounded. So they're like, oh, well, that means that uh, it was tumbled in the river in in this way um and then there was certain kinds of sediment found in the packets so geologists were like well it couldn't have come from this part of the stream and washed down it had to come from this part of the stream and washed down and Hmm. oh this area was dredged in 1974 and we didn't find the money so perhaps it wasn't in the area or maybe the dredging kicked it up and it was here all along. I mean, this money is super hotly contended when you ask experts how it got to this point. None of them will agree on how it got there. But what we know is that it's the only other evidence that been that has been recovered from this case. Wow. So all we've got to go on since the incident is one placard with directions on how to lower the stairs. Correct. And some a small bit of the money. None of the other $200,000 has ever been found or spent. The FBI has released serial numbers to banks, to gambling institutions, to any place that would deal with a major amount of cash. And Mm -hmm. we've never found this back in the currency stream ever again. Mm. Go ahead. Oh, I don't know. That just bums me out because I want to believe he then went and lived on an island. And that doesn't really support things having worked out so great. It doesn't support that, does it? Um, the FBI is pretty sure you're right. But if they're wrong and D.B. Cooper did not perish in the initial fall or when he hit the ground and is still out there, they have some suspects. <gasps> Over 45 years later, when we are here today, you know, authorities still don't know who Dan Cooper is. But they and some citizen sleuths who are working as a team right here in Seattle, actually, have some theories. And I'm going to tell you what those theories are in another episode. Because ah! this one's so long. 
It is. Okay, okay. Outro. And then we're going to intro and we're going to record the next one because I have never heard about people that they think. Yes. <laughs> I'm Cooper. so. I'm going to tell you about three of them. Um, okay. So you're going to be able to pick up this story on the next episode of Ouija Broads. You've been listening to Ouija Broads. You can rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. We'd love it if you find us to join our conversations on social media at the Ouija Broads on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. This is Devin. I've been joined with Liz today, and we would like for you to live weird. Die weird. Stay weird. Thank you Thanks for, for listening. listening. <laughs> I can't wait to find out what happened. I'm going to tell you what I think happened to you.